Throughout this series, we've explored the lives of women as artists and trailblazers from an outside perspective. So for this last episode, we're bringing you an inside look. I had the pleasure of interviewing two women who can count themselves among the number of artists with sculptures that you can view in the Capitol. For the first interview, I spoke with artist Deborah Copenhaver Fellows, the most recent woman to make a statue in the National Statuary Hall collection with her sculpture of Barry Goldwater that arrived in 2015 from the state of Arizona. You're listening to Shaping History, Women in Capital Art, produced by the Capital Visitor Center. Our mission is to inform, involve, and inspire every visitor to the United States Capitol. I'm your host, Janet Clemens. Here with me is Deborah Copenhaver Fellows. Deborah, welcome. Thank you. So I want to talk about how you became a sculptor or maybe why you became a sculptor. I've been researching some of the other women that have made statues for the Statuary Hall collection and haven't found any others that I could talk to about it. So can you take me back to the beginning, how you became an artist? I sure can. I went to college at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, and I'd gone to school on a political science scholarship. And it's just ironic that I got involved with an art class. Just, I'd always liked art, but in that day, a career in art was not considered a productive field financially. So my second year in school, I had gotten involved in an art class at Washington State, and I went to a girls' Catholic college, Fort Wright College of the Holy Names, and I met a nun Sister Paula Mary Turnbull, fairly famous in the Northwest. And the first day I saw her, she had a welding cap on top of a habit. Very interesting woman. As it turned out, I traveled the world with her. And she kind of took me under her wing. And I started doing sculpture. And from that time on, I was 18 years old, I pursued sculpture just as, not like a plan, it just happened that it was something that I was blessed to find out and pursue that as a life career. You know, some of the women artists in the Statuary Hall collection in the 19th century found that they had to go to Europe for opportunities to study from classic works and to have live models and to sculpt there. So when you traveled with Sister Mary Turnbull, what are some of the places that you went to? I studied a year in uh, Italy with the sculpture class in Florence. And that was kind of the the light turned on as far as the potential. Let me put it this way. I knew after I saw Michelangelo's work and the individuals that that was a possibility that could be achieved by a woman, a diminutive, you know, you didn't have to be a, a giant to accomplish a monument, to create a monument. Just, I saw his shoes. He's probably a woman-sized five shoe. Very diminutive individual. Just thoughts like that. Just, holy cow. Nothing I had ever anticipated thinking, let alone pursuing. And there it was. A small person could do anything. And it just, you know, the whole deal is the heart of the individual. If it's something that you're excited about and you want to do, you can do it. 
And so that was my major exposure was there in Italy, France. I went back, submitted my portfolio after college to the Sorbonne. They said I could only do it in independent study. There was no point in doing that. I studied in Greece with Sister Paula Mary. So my European experience was probably the most motivating time that I spent prior to just full-time going into art. So when you were done studying in Europe, what happens next? You came back to the States? Yeah, well, that was all in my younger years. I came back to the United States at the same time. I had studied interior design, and this was very fortuitous because I started my own business in design, and I I guess you could say I kind of polished somewhat of a business acumen, which most artists don't get. They don't understand business. They'd have to depend on somebody else to do it. But I was blessed to have that experience of running a business. And that, that lasted for about, oh, I think four years after I came back. And my heart was in the sculpture. I really wanted to pursue the, the sculpture. And so I let a I wouldn't say it was majorly lucrative, but I was making a living with my interior design and just started with the sculpture. Yeah, that's interesting because you mentioned earlier that you got the sense that a career in art wasn't going to be, you know, financially the best path forward when you first thought about it. Well, when I started, Janet, when I started, and to this day, I always signed D. Copenhaver. Women in art has always been... And to this day, it's more difficult than being a male in the art industry. I think that's changing now. I think it is changing, but I've been some major galleries, art galleries, and I've been told within the last probably eight years, you know, Deborah, if you were a man, I could sell your art so much easier. Wow. So you mentioned you, you yeah, signed... Yeah, isn't that daunting? <laughs> I can't believe that's happening in the 21st century, but... I want yeah, to come back. Was. Yep, yep. I want to come back to the way you sign your work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. My maiden name is Copenhaver, and I started in college signing at D. Copenhaver. And actually, later on, I've been married thirty years. I sign at D. Copenhaver Fellows now. I never wanted to get rid of my maiden name. I wanted continuity in my signature through my life, and so that's the reason I've kept it, D. Copenhaver Fellows. That's on the on the Goldwater. And do you use just your first initial in other contacts? No. Mm-mm. No, I, everything is Deborah Copenhaver Fellows. Right, right. So it's a conscious choice when you're signing the works to use the first initial. Yes. It has been for, let's see, 45 years doing art. So I want to talk about when you pursued this path or when you started thinking about it, did you feel you had the support of your family and of your community to make the choice to be an artist? Yes, I did with my family. Very supportive. My mom and my stepfather. I remember the line that my stepfather said. He said, Deborah, because I had done, I was very successful in the interior design business at a young age. And he knew my desire to pursue the art. And he said, it's time for you to make a choice of what you want to be excellent at. 
and that's the day that I made the decision just to make the commitment and uh, pursue the art wholly, no matter what. Go for it. I have been, from the beginning of my art career, I just like to do sculpture. And I've, my husband says, I have a shotgun approach to art. You do everything. Some people refine or uh, confine is the word their subject matter to Indians or cowboys or horses or dogs. I like doing everything. I like the experience of learning to do, whether it's the anatomy of the dog or the anatomy of cattle, the anatomy of the horse, or a portrait of an individual. I like the work of resolving an issue. So I like to do multiple subject matters. And that is, I think, I don't think, I know that has kept my eye fresh in my art. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you feel this is where you draw your inspiration from? Is this the environment where you live? I think, yes, for the animals or the puppies or the contemporary Western lifestyle. I believe that is true. But more of my projects, like right now, for example, I'm doing James Palmer Parker for the Big Island of Hawaii, a monument of him. He started a well-known Parker Ranch. The time frame on my sculpture is around the 1830s, 1830s to 1840. I just finished Jim Bowie for the Alamo. All of these different time frames come into play with the projects that I do. Yeah, there's a lot of historical subjects. Well, see, that's the fun of it. Just everything you get into, you learn about with King Kamehameha and Parker and Parker marrying the king's granddaughter and they got wedding gift of 60 acres and now it's one of the largest ranches in America, the property that he gave back to the Hawaiian people. It's beautiful stories. Jim Bowie, the history on him is really amazing. So every project I'm in is like reading another book and applying it to a visual. I would love to talk about the process of researching and creating your statue of Barry Goldwater. But first, I just want to ask you, how did you end up getting to make that statue? Well, every project comes a different way. That was a competition here in the state of Arizona. They uh, put a call to artists. But it wasn't just limited to Arizona artists. It was a call to artists all over. And so that's the way that one came. The Bowie, that was by invitation. So each project comes in a different way. First of all, the commission comes or the request for me to do a piece. And the important thing about picking me as compared to whatever artist they select, they are taken by the artist's eye on how the artist perceives that individual, whether it's Bowie or Palmer or Goldwater. And if it's a competition, they like your version and your ability to capture what they think he looked like from what's still available today. I'm going to work with the Goldwater because it's pertinent to this discussion. I started with Goldwater. I bought all of the pictures. I flew back to D.C. and went to the library, got as many pictures of him at his prime age in Senate, 
I have a stack of all of that information, read all the books on his family, knew his family history, learned things about him through his children, observed and photographed his family to get characteristics from them, saw his work, visited his home, visited his secretary, visited his friends, and then you just kind of put this compilation together of my perception of what he was and what I could put in a piece of artwork that would portray him accurately. And so, I first of all, I picked the age that I wanted him to be and then the gesture I wanted, dressed appropriately for his interests. If you'll notice, the Goldwater does have a pair of boots on. Mm-hmm. He was in Arizona, and he guided pack strings out of the Grand Canyon as a young man and rode in parades in his early years. Actually, not that early. Later on, he was still riding in parades, so he was an equestrian. He started the Bolo Tai Society in the United States. His collection is in the museum in Phoenix right now. So those were some of the things that came into it. The tattoo, he was a member of the honorary member of the Smokeye tribe, and every time he would go to the, one of the ceremonies, they would put another little tattoo dot on his hand. That And they did that. They've done that for years. So all of that adds up to the essence, the embodiment of where you've wanted to go with the depiction of Goldwater. So I took all of this information and I did a, that's called a maquette, a study, mm-hmm. which is the preliminary of the, the large one. And that's how I won the competition. And they asked for a portrait of him, a pretty close to life-size portrait of him, and the maquette of the gesture of the full body. So that's what I submitted to win the competition to do him. I was selected. So I take the, I think it was 25% scale model. And after I won the competition, then I converted that to 1.1, that's monumental scale, from 25% life to 1 in 10% life, which is in uh, Statuary Hall. So you mentioned how you assembled all your kind of materials and then you chose to show him at a certain age and with a certain gesture and then, you know, dress him a certain way. How do you make all those choices? What's that like? I think the older you get and the more you work with art, Well, first of all, you really have something to work with on a model if they have a level of maturity. You get more character with age. So with Goldwater, I wanted him at the peak at his prime. And I figured that that was when he was in the Senate, when he was really, really at that age, around the mid-50s, 60s. He just had a lot of character. Very handsome man anyway, but he showed the most character. And just, he was a compassionate individual. He would fly in medicine to the Navajo Indians and take risks to extend himself for people. He was a communicator. He was a ham operator, but he was a communicator. And that the gesture that I have with the handout is kind of him reaching out, that was Barry Goldwater. He was a very liberal individual as far as he was advanced for his time. Liberal is from the standpoint of homosexuality was not a negative for Goldwater. And that's in a time when, you know, it was all closet. 
He was a very open individual. It was so fun to get to know him. And I really felt like I did get to know him through the secretary. I made every effort I could to talk to anybody that knew him. And I got a feeling for him. This is, Janet, this is really an intimate thing to tell you from an artist standpoint. And this happened to me on my first monument that was a Bing Crosby. I worked so long and so hard and studied so hard, I began to dream about him. Oh. And I did the same thing on Barry Goldwater. He was in my dream so I could observe him. Sure. Does that sound bizarre? No, no. I that, mean... That's you're... how far in you can take that yeah. into... But on immersion. a project like that where you know... Immersion yeah, is the word that immersion. comes to mind, right? You're immersed in, in, immersion. His, in his kind of being because so you're trying to... So your subconscious is involved. Trying to communicate. So it. I got where I could, then not all the time, but it was so pleasant when I would dream about him. Mm-hmm. So sure. Anyway, that was that's one of those little inside notes. Sure. Well, this all I think seems to tie back to your original intent to major in political science, an early interest in workings of government and public service. Yeah, I still am interested in all of that. I could see where I could have gone on with that, but I'm so glad I went into the art. I mean, at different times, you know, there's. A life has challenges, and I've often said, art is a lonely life. You have to be friends with yourself because you're alone in the studio a lot. You have to know yourself. It's just hours of being alone. And it's just I did a 180 dealing with the public or going off into my alone space. Quite the dichotomy really. Yeah, but then to work on statues of these historical figures and political figures, it's kind of tying the two halves together, like a left-brain, right-brain kind of collaboration, I think. Yeah, you know, that's interesting, Janet. I've never put that together, but that's probably valid. So you mentioned that this process takes a long time. So the Arizona holds a competition. You won the competition, made the bust and the maquette, and then they liked it, and then you made it full size, right? And then what happens after that? After it's cast, then we shipped it back to D.C., and it's installed, and then the unveiling. And then you go back to the studio, and you start all over again on another project. Let's talk about the unveiling of the statue. Did you come to view it in Statuary Hall? Yes, yes, we were there. It was the most poignant moment of the whole thing for me. And I'm glad to be able to say this. Barry Goldwater's granddaughter was there. And she was, I hadn't seen her prior to the unveiling. They sat us all in Statuary Hall. And it was really a nice program. And after it was over, I walked over with my husband. And I said, I'd like to get one last picture before we leave. And standing in front of it was Barry Goldwater's granddaughter. And she was looking up at it, and she was crying. And I don't know if she knew it was me standing there. She said, that's my papa. And that's the first time she had seen it. And that was the most touching thing that could have been said to me as far as I got it. I nailed it. To have somebody that loved him say, that's papa. 
You're one of the 16 women to make a statue for the Statuary Hall collection, and I would like to know how that feels. When I actually give it any thought, which I seldom do, I guess I could say that I'm proud that I'm in that list. I think that's probably one of the the more special projects that I've been involved in. It's a jewel in the crown for a career. That's what I would say. So what advice would you give to a young woman who wanted to pursue the path that you have? Well, if someone wants to be an artist, no matter what happens, no matter what advice anybody gives them, they're going to be an artist. No matter what. Artist Lane not only designed the Congressional Gold Medal awarded to Rosa Parks in 1999, but her bust of Sojourner Truth, unveiled 10 years later in 2009, was the first sculptural depiction of an African-American woman in the Capitol. In this next interview, I spoke with Artist Lane. Ms. Lane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So there's a lot that I want to discuss with you today, but I thought perhaps we should start at the beginning. So can you tell us why you became an artist? In my belief, I understand that God gave me this gift. Everyone's given a gift, and I'm here to fulfill this gift. Excellent. And then I guess my next question is, how did you become an artist? Where did that process begin? At my birth, my mother named me artist. Very unusual. She had some insight. She was almost an angel with raising us girls and one brother mm -hmm. in Canada in an all-black village called North Buxton, Ontario. And your siblings have more typical names? Ordinary names, normal. Norma, Carol, Dolores. <laughs> My mother, bless her heart, was so worried that I would, she said I'd never make a living as an artist. I had to either be a teacher or to be a commercial artist. And as I say, I knew that I knew that the whole reason for my being here on earth was to follow the fine arts field, be a fine artist. The sensitivities, not to please, but to find, be obedient to the inspiration that coming to you as you create. So already with your name, you are a standing out artist. Yes. From school time, teased about it or amazed by it. And that I was early drawing little things for the other children in school and telling them how to draw. I was put in advanced classes in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My parents moved there during Depression years so that my father could work. He was what he called a doctor of motors. He was a mechanic because in all black village, he had worked on tractors and farm equipment, what have you. And my background with the Shad's family was from my mother's side, so that I always heard of Marianne Shad Carey as a heroine and followed her in an early life. It inspired me to make a statement through my 
paintings and sculpture that related to civil justice. You mentioned a moment ago that when you were young, you were teaching the other students how to make their drawings a little bit better. Did you go on to more artistic training soon after? Well, a wonderful little Irish lady, Alice McCoy, gave me at CCI, Chatham Collegiate Institute, fought to get me this four-year scholarship that always went to medicine or to law. And for it to go to an artist was very unusual. But she persuaded the principal to give it to me. So I had four-year scholarship. And then my mother's group would contribute to funds for, for me to survive in the big city of Toronto, where I became Queen of the Beaux Arts Ball. <laughs> First time for an ethnic to win that. Always many firsts in my life. At Cranbrook, where I was the first student, they accepted my portfolio, but found out that I was a young woman of color, so I won the entrance to it, but didn't get much friendly receptivity from the other students, who were usually very wealthy and elite group of people, but I endured that. So then after schooling, you began your career in art? Well, I was always getting little commissions from public school on up from the students who wanted their portrait done or whatever. And I did a mural for the Last Supper for the community church right across from where I lived and where today my sculpture of Marianne Shad Carey is standing. So I want to talk about when you begin a portrait, whether, you know, a painting or an engraving or a bust, where do you start with the person that you choose? I start with research, much research, as much as I can get a hold of, and also that my strong desire to do justice to their struggle as a person who has overcome many immoral issues <laughs> into a life of self-sacrifice and of great leadership and teaching and to obliterate racism. So what was your process like making the bust of Sojourner Truth? I would have all these photographs of her around me and even recording of her history. I kept centered on her qualities. I am a student of divine metaphysics and the whole motive for her daring to walk off that plantation and give herself that name as a journey woman <laughs> out to preach about God and against slavery. That was had, all my upbringing had dealt with that through my ancestors. So I was very much in tune with her whole reason for risking her life to make this message. She even had an audience with President Lincoln and her speeches even though she had not been educated and she was raised with a Dutch language, that she managed to, with her powerful presence, she was over six feet tall. And uh, in my work, I find like El Greco, I, I elongate to give it a more presence and power to elongate. So it was just naturally, she was six foot two, I believe. 
so she was just the ideal sculptor's muse or subject for me. Her story, of course, is what was the strength in my keeping at it. And I did many sketches of her along with the biography because she used, very clever lady, used photographic images of herself at gatherings and would sell them. Very enterprising, even up until her late years where she purchased land. What did the process feel like to sculpt the bust of Sojourner Truth? Well, the fine artist is always inspired by not only their gift given them, but for viewers to be lifted by the person whom you admire. So that just always made it possible for me to, with that motivation, it just automatically grew and took form in that way. You feel inspired and you overcome. I have still, I'm left-handed, which is a good sign for creative people. Physically, it can be quite harming. I have a bent finger in my left hand some years of sculpting pressure put on it. But you overcome that. You're just so caught up in seeing it appear before you. It's a, I could be just as amazed at anyone not doing it and not creating the work because of God's message on earth that everyone who has done much to uplift and speak of Divine love, principle, mind, soul, spirit, life, truth, as she did. That motivation, it just keeps you going. And I lose all sense of time working into the early morning, not having any consciousness of time. So you mentioned, you know, some of your work, portraiture, and some of your work about social justice or social injustice. And you've also mentioned the metaphysical. Can you talk more about that? I was given a book called Science and Health with a key to the scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy, who herself was a suffragette. She, in fact, her injury, she had just come back from the protest against injustice. And when I was given that book, Science and Health, at first I didn't understand it completely. In fact, the word metaphysics I was young there. I didn't get the depth of meta above the physical into the spiritual. It's meaning, and I had been working that way, creating work from that point of view, but was so grateful that it came to me. It was given to me as a motivation for my approach to getting a likeness or making a statement. I have now... From on page 115, the concept of the uh, translation of immortal mind, God created man in God's image, God is a spirit, and therefore the mind that is purely a reflection of God, pure, I use as body language, using a pure African as a symbol of generic man, that whole belief of it all beginning in the the bowels of Africa, just just as a symbol to use through body language in darkness, lying in the fetal pose of death or sin, and the power of God pulling 
this generic man up sculpture about body language beseeching and then now the final top balanced on one leg coming out from the pure reflection or understanding of God and of his true identity and that's expressed through a pure African model Jaimon Hong Su who's known by many people he posed for all of the sculptures of the generic man rising higher and higher and that now is being uh, I took it up to twice the size because the first ones were only 37 inches and in installation in Forest Lawn Museum of uh, that journey we all go through uh, using myself and my own journey out of darkness and into the light I did myself in darkness just heads and then the work a day with the skeleton for anatomy, the easel symbols, and then the final that you must give a single eye. So I used to express the spiritual me in the very light white background from dark black, gray, charcoal up to a vertical triptych. <laughs> of my self-portrait. When you think about the bust of Sojourner Truth sitting in the United States Capitol and visitors come to see it, is there something, a certain message you would like or hope that they would take away from looking at that bust? I'm so strong on this idea of erasing that disrespect for the beauty of ebony-skinned and also lack of equal respect for females. So I would hope that my portrayal of her sets a new standard for admiration, just visually and ethically. Wonderful. Well, we love having the bust on display in the Capitol, and visitors do react to it. It's featured on a couple of our specialty tours, and folks can see it without even going on a tour. So I want to say personally thank you for making the bust of Sojourner Truth. I'm so glad at 92 I'm still alive to hear that. And from others, I get photographs of people standing beside it that I don't know. And So I thank you for your what you're doing to keep it alive and understood. What do you think the legacy will be left by your art? I pray that it will lift each viewer or collector or museum that shows my work to understand Genesis verse 26, that God created man in God's image without any thought to skin color or features. or It's a spiritual reality, not an anatomical one. From the first echoes of footsteps in the Capitol, women have been a part of the story. We've explored more than 150 years of women in Capitol art, and the journey is only just beginning. At the 2009 unveiling of the bust of Sojourner Truth, Artist Lane made the following remarks. 
This clip was courtesy of the House Recording Studio. On behalf of all the visual artists of the world, I know our president has put aside a budget for our culture to be recognized out of the bigoted museums that have left the, out of the culture when all students of all races enter the museums. I'm so proud to be a humble, working woman who was inspired by this lady and also my great-great-aunt, Mary Ann Shad Carey, who I think knew her. They were about the same era. It was a woman speaker. I'm unveiling her bronze in Canada, May the 2nd. I just want to thank you to recognize if you have children at home who want to be visual artists, don't discourage them. God gave them a gift. God will see it through and supply them. Thank you for listening to Shaping History, Women in Capital Art. For more information or to book a tour, please go to visitthecapital.gov. The interviews included in this podcast represent the personal reflections and opinions of the interviewees and should not be considered as the official views or opinions of the U.S. Capitol Visitor Center, the Architect of the Capitol, or members of Congress. <laughs>